0: Welcome to the Porch Roof Classic, a retro baseball podcast novel in 15 episodes by Jeff Pullman. Episode 1 Since baseball time is measured only in outs, all you have to do is succeed utterly. Keep hitting, keep the rally alive, and you have defeated time. You remain forever young. Sitting in the stands, we sense this, if only dimly. The players below us, Maze, DiMaggio, Ruth, Snodgrass, swim and blur in memory. The ball floats over to Terry Turner, and the end of this game may never come. Roger Angel, The Summer Game This is dedicated to Terry Cannon, Reliquarian Extraordinaire. windy days aren't what i would call fun not when the little plastic bastard bounces around on a warm gust like a midget tumbleweed just to mess with your head you squeeze the cloth handle maybe start a new blister because you know the fluttery thing has no business missing your bat. dig one heel into the dirt or an anthill and unleash a vicious swing hope to hear that loud delicious click and watch the ball soar toward a porch roof drop your head kick up dust with your sneaks, and prance around the pie-tin bases like a horse that just won the frickin' Derby. It's a struggle to get my grandson to play with me now, but for sure, wiffleball was the pleasure that pecked our Western Massachusetts summer in 1970. Especially with me and Izzy Drucker and Jean Remar, being too young to get drafted or drive a car or go to a big rock concert like that Woodstock mess up in New York the previous year. Cripes, we still barely knew how to talk to girls, even with the one or two I knew in school who I dreamed of speaking with. Melanie Court, for instance. Doubt not even said six words to her, but seeing those blue eyes, freckle nose, and short, wheat-colored hair every day in homeroom was like a visual cup of coffee years before I'd even drunk the stuff. There she was, four rows in front of us on the morning bus for that last day of Marsh Meadow Junior High, and wow, that bus! No one staying in their seats due to flying insults and spitballs, Mr. Rumpton slamming and squeaking the brakes at least five times, once even for a stop sign, Izzy and Jean filling our wide back seat with dumb jokes and ribbing and giddy vows to scribble craziness later in each other's yearbooks. Izzy was the only Orthodox Jewish kid I knew, even though he tried not to admit it. During Sabbath Eve dinners, he'd sometimes duck away to call me and gossip about girls. We'd been friends since fourth grade and kept each other laughing to avoid being afraid of things, like the Jew-hating creeps who would lob rocks and snowballs at our Hebrew school bus almost every time we rode it. Izzy's straight black hair was short and weirdly greasy, like it was painted on his head. He was an inch or two smaller than me, and often wore striped pants or a striped shirt to make himself look taller. Gene was from a different Goyim planet, the only non-Jew Izzy and me hung out with. He always tried to come off super cool like Peter Fonda or maybe even the 1950s actor James Dean, but with his scrawny neck, gangly body, and acne that seemed to move to a different spot on his face every week, you wouldn't call him handsome. He'd been living with his mom in an old trailer park on the Springfield border since his dad moved out and most of the time had a sliced-off anger in his voice. He liked to hang out with us but seemed too annoyed with life to care about anything but pizza, the Boston Bruins, and firecrackers. As we got close to the school parking lot, he gave my elbow a friendly smack. "'Saturday, Joey. Six innings at the grounds?' An electric smile sizzled over my face, then struck Izzy's. We didn't even have to answer. Hot, cold, and blustery seasons showed up brutal and fast in western Mass, but the Whiffle Grounds, on Squaw Farm Lane, a half block from Pine Road, was in a God-protected bubble. Hours later, three bites into my sloppy joes, someone jabbed a rib through the side of my polka dot shirt. I knew who it was before I even turned, because Mick Shaw was about four foot two inches, and any other kid would have come up to my shoulder. Hey, Tosh, come here a sec. What for? Just come on. Somebody wrote about you on the wall in the bathroom, and I thought you might want to see it. Really? Don't sweat. It's kind of funny. Can I see it too? asked Izzy, eating next to me as usual. No, just Tosh. It's a little crowded in there. Izzy shot me a wary look. I dumbly ignored him and followed Mick into the hall. "'How come you're limping, Tosh?' he asked. Oh, scraped my knee, running to the bus. "'Yeah? Did you hurt yourself?' He chuckled, then said, "'Just kidding,' when I shot him a glare. We reached the boys' room door. The moment I swung it open, I had second thoughts, then third ones. The bathroom wasn't crowded at all, and for a good reason— some kid had barfed his entire sloppy joes and the rest of a french toast breakfast in the middle of the linoleum floor all the massive puddle needed was crime scene police tape holy shit! i cried too late one pair of hands grabbed my arm a second scooped my legs and in seconds i was airborne over the vomit and dropped into a corner of it like a polka dotted watermelon you assholes My glasses clattered across the floor. I couldn't get up because one of the goons had his shoe pinned on my arm. They chuckled and wheezed and chuckled again. North Marsh Meadow to the core. I rolled away from the puddle, minimal liquid damage to my pants leg, flopped on my back just in time to see Mick edge into a corner and give way to a pale, angular giant with rust-colored hair, malevolent green eyes, and a jester's grin. Danny Blight snorted and crouched over me, his breath reeking of greasy meat. "'Have to admit it, Tosh," he said, and pointed at the barf dripping off my pants leg. "'I really don't like what you're wearing.' This produced loud cackling and wheezing from his sidekicks. "'Why are you doing this?' I blubbered. "'Well, you were there in the neighborhood, and so we thought you should drop in.' More cackles and wheezes as Danny stood back up. "'I'm going to get you, sons of bitches!' I cried. Oh, I'm sure you'll try. Have a good summer. They followed him out to the hall. I hopped up, yanked my corduroys off, and gave the pant leg a lukewarm bath in the sink. Rinsed and wiped my glasses. Curse words I never knew existed spilled from my mouth. I pulled the cords back on and marched out. Melanie Court exited the cafeteria as I re-entered, gave my drippy pants a baffled look. I scanned the room. Saw Danny and his obnoxious minions at their usual center table, eating, yucking it up, pantomiming my puke puddle throws. The rage I felt in that moment wiped away every passive drop I had. Izzy spotted me from our table and tried to get Jean's attention. I was awkward, but I was quick, and the creeps didn't see me coming. Mick Shaw whirled and lunged too late. I rammed Danny square in the shoulder blades. He grunted and fell forward face splatting in sloppy joes. I pounded the back of his neck. His friends grabbed my arms, but Danny spun in fury, shoved them aside, tackled me. We rolled and clawed, my glasses flying off again, food items pelting us as a bleacher section formed. Two teachers finally arrived to pry us apart, and my last day of junior high school had become a legend. Vice Principal Grogenbeck's office was tiny, too hot, and terrifying. One foot inside and you knew the Green Reaper was waiting in a dark corner. It didn't help that Groggenbeck, a crew-cutted dinosaur who hadn't smiled since birth, sat behind his perfectly neat desk at a weird angle, his nose trying to avoid the puke aroma still wafting off my soiled pants. Danny somehow had changed into a different sports shirt and slacks, like he had a clothing store installed in his locker. This is how you choose to spend your last day of junior high, asked groggenbeck, rustling like hogs, Danny's friends dropped me in barf, Mister Grogenbeck. I blurted. He set up the whole thing, possibly, but assaulting a student in the lunch hall is sluggish, unacceptable behavior, Mister. Tosh. What kind of example is that for others? He hit me from behind, too, said Danny, being sure to wince from imaginary back pain. Shut up, jerk, you started it. You see, said Danny to Grogenbeck, there's that thuggish behavior. Grogenbeck's nostril flared. You're both lucky it was the final day of the semester, but in this case, I think a little reprimanding is in order. He flipped open a spiral notepad and began jotting. What do you mean, I asked, caught the beginning of a smirk on Danny's sloppy joeless face. "'Yes, I will be talking to Mr. Bajorek in the custodial office today to sign both of you up to be his handy-hand next Tuesday.' "'Oh, man!' I cried. Mr. Bajoric was our creepy janitor from some Slavic country who smelled like cooked cabbage, and we tried to never go near him. "'You, Mr. Blight, will report for one hour, and you, Mr. Tosh, will be there for three. "'What? That's not fair!' Sparking a lunchroom brawl on what is meant to be a celebratory day is not fair to our school or its students, young man. But I told you I got dumped in barf. So says you, uttered Danny. My face exploded. I was ready to lunge at him again. I'm afraid Mr. Blight has a point. There there were no witnesses to this boys' room incident, so I believe the punishments are very fair. That's all. I leapt out of my chair and stormed out. Danny stayed in his, waited till I hit the hall to share a small laugh with Groggenbeck that was just loud enough for me to hear. I wasn't surprised by this. Living in a large, two-story colonial on Collier, the leafiest street in town, the Blights were one of the more influential families in Marsh Meadow. Ever since Danny's dad Robert moved them from Worcester when he landed a top exec job at Mortec Industries in Southwick, the family had adopted a kingly self-entitlement. Bob Blight wedged into town politics, wife Jane socialized her way onto every PTA committee, and even Danny's older brother Tom had some kind of important job overseas to give them an untouchable quality, which explains why the meeting in Grogenbeck's office was a joke. I had no idea how Danny Blight was going to pay for what he did, but I knew I'd spend my whole summer trying to think of a way. Because the meeting with Grogenbeck was after school, I missed getting calmed down by Izzy and Jean on the bus ride home. It also meant Mom had to wheel our Catalina into the parking lot to fetch me at 4.30. Shirley Tosh wore that exasperated, I-can't-believe-the-school-called-me look over her green blouse and purple slacks, groaned as she stretched across the front seat to unlock my door before putting her brown beehive hairdo back in place. Then she got a whiff of my wardrobe. Yikes! Why do your clothes stink? I got dropped in barf, a wicked awesome last day. While Mom didn't have a paying job, she sure as heck had an unpaying one, making every meal and washing the clothes and cleaning the house and being an emotional bulletin board all three of us could pin our needs to. Well, those are going in the trash, and your father isn't going to be happy. Again? Dad may have been oblivious or short-tempered before he had his evening cocktail, but I couldn't even count how many times this floating threat turned out to be meaningless. We've been hoping for a nice summer this year, Joey. Even have a possible Rhode Island vacation planned, so it's not the best foot to start off on. But Danny, ever hear the expression that New Englanders don't get mad, they get even? Yeah, and that's what I did. Got even. No, you got mad and even. Whatever. He's a big ass face and he deserved it. Well, your father isn't going to be happy. She was right this time. Dad wasn't even well into his second Gordons and Tonic. Known as funny Phil Tosh to his fellow coat buyers at Marcuson's department store downtown. He actually may have been the least cool dad for 50 square miles, but his pipe smoking, tolerance of soul music, and daring sideburns to the bottom of the ear indicated he was forever trying to change that. Still, he couldn't wait for us to settle into our never-changing seats around the dinner table to tap me on the arm, even though he was five inches away. Proud of yourself? I guess so. You guess so? Good. Keep it up, become a hoodlum, and enjoy yourself in jail. Joey's going to jail, cried my eleven-year-old brother Robbie, in between chicken fricassee bites. No, honey, said Mom, it's just an expression. Stooping to an idiot's level will get you nowhere, continued my father, pointing this out with his fork. I shrugged. I was just defending myself, Dad. You're saying if someone dropped you and barfed you would just roll around in it and eat some? "Ew," said Robbie. Even Dad made a face. A bully is going to bully, Joey, said mom, no matter what you do. So I should just let him get away with it? No, but sometimes not responding the way he wants you to can show him a lot. Anyway, said Dad, no sense riling up that end of town against us, right? Dad always preached nonviolence, but I called it safe compliance. His father changed our family name from Toshwitz to Tosh two generations ago to help him secure employment at an all-Gentile clothing factory in Providence. So why mess with success? He's a dumb Irish brat, added my mother, always counted on to bring up heritage. Right, said Dad, meaning don't outbrat him and find a healthy way to stay out of trouble, like getting a job. Dad, I'm not even fifteen yet. Cindy Stein's boy is stocking shelves at Foodright already, piped in my mother, and he's fourteen. Yeah, because Mr. Stein owns all three of their stores. Doing this special work for your janitor should be good for you. Three hours of hell with that weirdo? Doubt it. There's also a lot of paying jobs you can get, continued Dad. Set up tables at the community center, work in the kitchen at Irv's Deli, caddy down at Twin Oaks. Lawns! I cried out of desperation. I'll mow lawns again. This stopped Phil Tosh like a barn swallow at a glass window. He'd been a frustrated landscaper for as long as I could remember slowing the family car to a crawl whenever he turned onto Squaw Farm Road so he could peruse every neighbor's lawn and comment on what they were doing right or wrong. You'll cut lawns again? Sure. Nobody complained last summer, so that includes ours, you know, and I don't want to see one blade of grass sticking up around the bushes in that tree. Jesus. His damn tree. You got it. And watch out for Mrs. Bauman's flower bed. One inch of it, and she'll pour you a nice cold glass of poison lemonade. Socks and yanks are on Channel 22 tonight, Joey. Sonny Siebert's pitching. I know. Was going to watch. Did you hear what I said about Bauman's flower bed? Yeah, Dad. And Bert Siegel's driveway has this weird little curve near the bottom. Need to be extra careful there. No problem. "'Can we ride up to Drug Depot and get some new cards before the game starts?' "'yelped Robbie. "'Uh, if we have time, sure.' "'Make some,' said Mom. "'You two could use the exercise. "'But finish your peas first. "'The mosquitoes came out big time before sundown, "'mostly from the gurgling brook that ran through the patch of woods a block north. "'They were vicious dive-bombers, but if Robbie and me pedal fast enough, "'we can make it through a couple of swarms with just a few bites.' Tigers are just two in front of us, you know, Robbie yakked from his banana seat, pumping hard to keep up with my three-speed Schwinn. Third place or fourth, what's the difference? Meanwhile, no way the Yankees should be so close to the Orioles, I offered. They blow. Yeah, but I hate the Orioles more. I hate them both. Damn! A blue Mustang zipped around the corner at Spencer and nearly wiped both of us out. Robbie flipped the driver a little middle finger, and I had to swat it down. Bad idea, Robs. Better to get even, not mad. Huh? Forget it. He yammered on about Joe LaHood and the shortcomings of the Boston bench for the final four blocks, and then we were in the Drug Depot parking lot. The little brick building with a laundromat attached was more of a general store than a pharmacy. Magazines, candy, clip-on sunglasses, a small lunch counter with great grilled cheeses, cold remedies, and thankfully wiffle balls were all crammed into three aisles. I grabbed a couple new wiffle boxes and took them to the register, where the real holy grails were, tops baseball card packs. Owner Sid, whose last name we never knew and would never learn, lowered his horn-rimmed glasses as we entered and slid over from the drug counter because he knew what we were really there for. "'Boys are in luck!' he exclaimed. "'New ones came in yesterday!' I was thrilled. Robbie elated. We expected to get stuck with our fourth Mike Kekich or Bob Aspermonte, but 1970 tops was just into series six now. I slipped Sid a dollar bill for my 20 packs and stuffed them in my back pockets. As usual, Robbie couldn't be contained. He tore open three packs right in the store, shoved the god-awful pink gum slabs in his mouth and thumbed through 15 new treasures. Cleon Jones, thank you, Lord! I got him to pocket his remaining packs so we could get back before dark, but he didn't even need remaining sunlight. His face beamed the entire way home. still haven't seen Mays or banks. Think we got him? I don't know, Robbie. Maybe. Can you toss me a few pitches in the morning before we go to the grounds? I think I got a good willy swing now, and I'm clearing that dumb tree. Yeah, sure. Our backyard would have been the perfect shape for a wiffle ball diamond if Phil's tree didn't occupy the shortstop position. Robbie and I tried reversing the field once so that right-handed homers flew tree-free into the Bickersteen's overgrown yard, but that didn't work. The wind on our side of Marsh Meadow usually blew from the south, then cut through a handful of tobacco fields before exhaling across the river, and most every clout that attempted to battle it died peacefully as a weak pop-up. We all have those existence, banes, and the 20-foot-high maple our dad protected like a third son was Joey's. His quest to powerball over it was Captain Ahab-like. A good 80% of his missiles crashed into the branches. One time he hit one straight down the line and left that grazed the back of the garage three feet from the top. Another time he accidentally put some English on the plastic and it curved around the tree, heading for the roof of the porch, Word fell short of the gutter and plopped into a bush. Despite numerous attempts, he had never been able to repeat that English. Robbie was three years younger but a bigger Red Sox fan than me, if that was possible. He kept every Boston bubblegum card from the last four years in his bottom dresser drawer, safe in a thick rubber band inside a rubber boot he refused to wear in winter. He spent every shred of toilet time sifting through minutiae on the back of each card, studying for a quiz he would never take. Fifth and sixth grades hadn't been easy for him, and he had no friends except for me, so the cards were not only his New Testaments, but his closest companions. Later, Mom and Dad absconded with the TV to watch The Name of the Game, so we lay on our beds with the radio tuned to Hartford's Red Sox station. Ken Coleman and N. Martin were broadcasting from Fenway, and three of our heroes, Yaz, Reggie Smith, and Mike Andrews, went deep in a 7-4 Boston win. Robbie and I took turns yelping and hooting until Dad pounded on the wall and sleep rolled over us like jiffy on bread. You've been listening to The Porch Roof Classic by Jeff Pullman. This retro baseball podcast novel was made possible by Spotify for Podcasters and Buzzsprout. Be sure to basket catch another episode next week. Feel free to rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you're using. Also, if you'd like to make a small contribution, go to buymeacoffee.com slash jpolman54v. Thanks.